from The Advocate Magazine. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and you're listening to LGBTQ and A. Today, I'm talking to Sonia Passi, the creator of Free From. Free From is an organization working to financially empower survivors of domestic violence. The majority of sexual assaults occur in domestic violence situations, which I did not know before talking to Sonia. And as she explains, this is something that affects a massive number of people of all genders and all sexualities. And viewing it as a quote unquote private issue is really the wrong way to think about it. So that interview is coming up. And if you enjoy it, please subscribe to the podcast. We have new interviews with the most interesting and influential members of the LGBTQ community every week. And when you subscribe and leave a comment specifically on iTunes, it is a huge way to help new people find our show, which is very, very helpful. So if you haven't, please take a second to do that. And if you have, thank you. I really appreciate it. All right, let's get to the interview. Without further ado, here's Sonia. I want to talk about your work with survivors of domestic violence. Yes. But to begin with more generally, with the Me Too movement, yeah. there's been more and more conversations about sexual assault and sex-based discrimination. Mm-hmm. And most of those stories, most of those stories take place in the workplace yeah. and involving people's careers. With that, are you also seeing a rise in awareness around domestic violence? Yes and no. Yes, because I think people are really starting to prioritize women's issues, prioritize gender-based violence issues. No, because we're still very much seeing all of these different forms of gender-based violence in uh, silos. So like there's the Me Too movement and then there's the Time's Up movement. Those are separate and distinct. I haven't yet seen them come together and collaborate. And I haven't yet seen Uh, the domestic violence movement doing anything with the Time's Up movement or the domestic violence movement having their own hashtag. This hasn't happened yet. Hasn't had its own, like, huge rise in the way that sexual assault and uh, workplace harassment have. And yet, those are all just uh, different variations of the same problem. A lot of people don't know that most sexual assault happens within domestic violence. It's not happening outside of relationships. It's actually happening within them, within oh, the it's, context. It's of people abuse. that you know. Yeah, or, more, or dating. more than that. It's people that you're dating. It's people that you're married to. Um, I think it's uh, it's definitely more than fifty percent of sexual assaults happen within domestic violence situations. That's wild. It's yeah. just so easy to I don't want to say ignore, but to not think about because it happens usually privately. Exactly, and that's I think what um, I've been talking about this a lot. We talk so much about private and public and what happens in the home and what happens in the workplace. Um, And I think that that actually inhibits us from getting to effective solutions. Gender-based violence is a community issue. It is a national crisis. It is something that we all have a responsibility to address. And by saying that happened in the workplace, so it's, you know, more external or that happened at home, so that's more private, is I think completely the wrong way to think about it. You have a responsibility to your neighbor if you know they're being abused, to your employee if you know they're being assaulted or or harassed. And people that are harassing in the workplace, you you can be fairly sure that they're doing the same thing at home. That is the same line of behavior. You're not going to find someone who is a nonviolent partner, but a violent uh, coworker. 
they've done a lot of work around this, a lot of kind of unveiling this myth that this is a private issue in um, with relationship to mass shooters. Uh, domestic violence is one of the key indicators of mass shooters, of serial killers. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. In the last two to three uh, years of kind of uh, high-profile mass shootings, there's almost always a domestic violence component. Uh, often it was domestic violence that led them to have a gun in a school or in a, a public place in the first place. So for people wondering what they can do at home, yeah. uh, when you don't actually see the, the violence occurring, w- w- like are we supposed to just keep our eye out for effects of that or is there something more actionable that we can do? It's a good question. I think that we need to break down this myth of kind of what happens at home stays at home. I think we have to get comfortable talking about the issue. I think we have to not always put the pressure on the survivor to come forward or the survivor to tell their story. We have to create environments in which that can happen. And we have to ask ourselves why it isn't happening. And so that means talking about it in schools. That means talking about it in colleges. That means talking about it at work. It means creating policies that say this is a place where it's okay to um, talk about this. It's okay to disclose this. I try to avoid just bashing Trump on this yeah. podcast, but I also can't then not draw the connection to our president yeah. being an accused sexual uh, yeah. assaulter. Yeah. I just can't not think about the the symbol that is to people yeah. that this is acceptable behavior. Exactly. And so as we're thinking about like what people can do, you and I have a responsibility to keep our eyes and ears open and to Uh, create safe spaces for people, but it really starts at the top. And that means government, that means corporations, um, employers have a responsibility to their employees, schools have a responsibility to their students. Um, And we have to uh, create structures that say this is not okay. If we really are serious about creating structures, institutions that say no more, it's going to topple so much power And I don't know any institution that's willing to do, any institution that's big enough that's willing to do that. I think the stat I read, tell me if you have different stats, is that one in four women will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. That's a huge number. Severe domestic violence. Severe. So you're talking about, I mean, a national crisis. Right. Like, this is the worst thing to happen to women ever in the world. And ongoing. Yeah. I also know that, like, the numbers don't work out perfectly. But if we can also assume, let's say, like one in four men will be an abuser, that's a massive number again. And it just, um, yes, we need to do something to help women, but we also need to do something to change that so that men don't go to that. There have to be consequences, and there just aren't any now. Um, Because oftentimes men are in power. Yeah, yeah. And you you don't lose anything. And often in domestic violence, you actually have a lot to gain financially from abusing someone. You may take out credit cards in their name and it's debt that's in their name, but you're benefiting from, you know, maxing out these credit cards. You may take their paycheck. If where there is a harm, there has to be a repair. And what what we forget is that there's the emotional impact, there's the physical impact, but it's also really, really expensive to be a survivor of any kind of gender-based violence. The American Journal of Preventative Medicine last week released a study in which they showed that female survivors of intimate partner violence will spend an average of $103,000 in their lifetime recovering from the abuse. 
Interestingly, um, to the contrary, male survivors of intimate partner violence, um, and this is not just a women's issue, uh, will uh, have costs uh, at about $23,000. And so that is why your organization, Free From, focuses on financial abuse. Yeah. 98% of domestic violence cases, in addition to there being physical abuse, psychological abuse, sexual abuse, there's also financial abuse, which basically means it's as prevalent as the physical and the emotional. So wh- where do you, like, where does Free From begin with people? Um, it's a good question. We kind of spent the last 18 months piloting our work, which meant doing a lot of it one-on-one with survivors. So, for example, we created an entrepreneurship program last year with the with the intention of supporting survivors and in building income in a way that was flexible and they could do around being single mothers, having a tremendous amount of trauma, maybe not having any work experience, having court dates, and so forth. So we worked with 24 survivors last year to start their businesses. 100% made a profit in the first month that their business launched. Um, and 12 months later, those businesses are still up and running. They're, they're creating financial independence for themselves, um, investing in secure housing and so forth. That was really successful. That's pretty innovative to be helping survivors to create businesses to support themselves, right? Yeah. There's not a lot of people that do that. No, it's. I mean, there's a lot of people that do entrepreneurship work. What we really did was we created a program that was tailored to survivors and their unique needs. For example, the very first time we sat down with a survivor to create a budget for her business, she absolutely froze. And she shared with us that it reminded her of when she had to write down every dollar that she was spending uh, when she was in the abuse. One of the things that we're working on right now is actually supporting domestic violence organizations in learning how to do this work themselves with their clients, whether it's income building, it's credit repair, it's protecting your finances, healing financial trauma. So kind of a term that I've started to use more now is financial trauma because a lot of survivors don't see what they experience as financial abuse. Uh, or they may not have experienced financial abuse um, in the kind of typical way that I just explained it. But the process of leaving, of leaving their lives behind, of rebuilding, of dealing with the medical expenses, trying to get therapy for themselves and their children, created a great amount of financial trauma in their lives. They became housing insecure and so forth. You also have, is that that goes to your online self-help compensation tool? Yeah. So that was the first technology that we launched in January of this year. So, for example, in California, if you are a victim of crime and you have eligible expenses and receipts for those expenses or invoices, you can get up to $70,000 back from the state. Most people don't know that. Survivors in particular don't know that. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That can be the difference between you being able to move forward with your life or not. And so what this compensation tool that we created does is it break, it uh, takes survivors through a process of figuring out which compensation option is right for them and then exactly how to pursue it. Because almost always you don't actually need an attorney. You just need to know this is the right paperwork or this is the right person to call or this is the right question to ask. And that information isn't out there. Wow. And then how do people find you to help? Yeah, so (laughs) we launched that tool at the end of January. And in the first 48 hours, we had 25,000 users. Wow. The way that they found us was that it went viral on social media, which I think speaks to two things. It speaks to how much impact you can have or how much reach you can have when you put uh, put something out there online that's free. Um, and also speaks to how much people want this information. 
And so what we found is, although we, you know, we partner with a lot of organizations that work with survivors, and so we're trying to get the word out that way, actually the majority of people are coming to us through social media. And do many states have programs like that for compensation? Every state has that, that program where the state will pay. Every single state has that. That is wild. And that money is only allowed to be used to recoup uh, the cost of being a victim of crime. And so if it's not used, it's not used, but it's sitting there waiting. We tend to think of heterosexual couples when we think of domestic abuse, when we know, of course, it affects everyone. Are there stats about the difference in terms of heterosexual and queer couples? Yeah, there aren't good enough stats. Um, We know that trans survivors experience or trans women experience intimate partner violence in much higher numbers than anyone. Um, We know that gay men experience intimate partner violence much more than heterosexual men. And so we kind of have a rough sense that it's incredibly prevalent in the queer communities, but there haven't been enough, there haven't been enough studies done, reliable studies done. And part of that is just a lot of people don't feel safe to disclose. Right. We said one in four women will experience this and that's likely underreported. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know how many, that's, that's very unreported, underreported. I don't even know how many states uh, trans women feel like they can go to a women's shelter. Yeah, I think that my guess is that the majority of trans women who need shelter have to go to a homeless shelter because they're not welcome in in traditional domestic violence shelters that are for heterosexual women. Yeah, it sounds dumb, but all the people I know who've been victims and are survivors of domestic violence, they don't look like what I think. Yeah. And I I feel like that sounds nasty, but like it's the people I think like, oh, that'll never happen to them. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're too wealthy, they're too yeah. smart, too educated. And like you said, like it's a massive problem that affects yeah. almost everyone. Yeah, I think that um, you're not alone in feeling that way. I think that there are so many myths about intimate partner violence. For example, one of the biggest myths is that intimate partner violence is a low-income problem. And that myth comes from the fact that survivors are typically at a point in their life where they're financially insecure. So we just assume that they must have come from financial insecurity. What we're missing is that big piece that actually it's the intimate partner violence that causes them to be financially insecure. Um, I think Big Little Lies, I don't know if you saw it, but Big Little Lies did such a good job of breaking down all the stereotypes of what a survivor looks like. It was Nicole Kidman. She was beautiful. She was white. She was rich. She lived in this, like, everybody knows everybody's business community. She had friends. She had an education. She was a lawyer. Um, She had made money in the past. And she was a survivor of domestic violence. And the part that we forget, because it's so much easier to place blame on the victim, is abusers are so charming. I know a lot of survivors who say, I don't know how I didn't see this or I should have seen this. But that's how abuse works. The whole point is abusers look like everyone else. And you've been doing this work for a while. What initially drew you to it? Yeah, I've been doing this work since I was 16. I'm 30, so that's not a huge amount of time, but it is almost half of my life. I was really passionate about human rights as a teenager. I thought I was going to be a human rights lawyer. And so I started an Amnesty International group at my high school. And uh, their campaign that year was global violence against women. And so they send you all these materials and you learn about it and you do activism around it. 
And like bullet point five on page three of the booklet was, you know, one in three women in the world will experience intimate partner violence, which I just remember how deeply that shook me to my core, that this was uh, not something that I, I didn't know this statistic. I didn't understand why it wasn't all we were talking about. And it was such a black and white issue. Like this is, there's no disputing that intimate partner violence is wrong. And I think what I felt, because I was really at this point where I was starting to think about what are fundamental human rights, I really was like, if you are not safe in your own home, then where are you safe? And everybody deserves to have a place in their life where they are physically and emotionally safe. And it's really then and there that it became my issue. The issue was too big for me to not do anything about it. And so that's when I started to work on it. I was wondering before you got here if it was if it was emotionally hard to be working with so many survivors, yeah. but it sounds like a lot of your work is actually creating the technology so that you're not interacting with people and hearing their stories per se. Yeah, I'm um, I'm a I'm very much like a structure person. So you know, I started an organization while I was a second year in law school. It's still very much growing and has far exceeded kind of the vision that I had for it. But that organization again kind of was one step removed from the crisis and was about implementing structures that uh, allowed for survivors healing. I see very much the work that we do at Free From in the same way. And we also have the benefit, I actually feel like we have the best job in the world because we're working with survivors on rebuilding their lives. We're not working with survivors on navigating crisis. So typically when clients come to us, they are, they're ready to thrive. And we, we really come at uh, the work with them from this place of, not you're a victim, but you're going to build wealth for yourself. You're going to build security for yourself. And so it's a very kind of forward-looking, inspired, um, empowered place that they're in as they're working with us. And so you're not working with them in like phase two. You're working with them in phase one in conjunction with other people doing like divorce courts and different things yeah. like that, right? Yeah. It's all happening at the same time yeah. or can. The way that I think about domestic violence is the day that you leave – is the day when you actually have the most power. Um, it is such a risk to leave. You are giving up so much certainty for so much uncertainty. And that sounds crazy to say in the context of this because every day is uncertain when you're a survivor. Um, but it really is taking such a big leap and choosing yourself. What I think that the domestic violence movement does a bad job of is supporting survivors in maintaining that sense of power. I think that what we actually end up doing is stripping that power down. What Free From is trying to do is say, that's it. You've just found your power in all of that shame and belittling. You found your power. Now let's, let's figure out how to take that and build financial security for yourself with it. You mentioned growing up and going to high school. That, that was in the UK. Where was it? It was in England. England. Manchester. I, I bring it up because immigration is such like a like freaking hot topic nowadays yeah. and we don't think of somebody like you sure. somebody with a british accent yeah but tough. yeah <laughs> it's faded actually yeah, yeah very faded but somebody who has moved to america and is creating a business to help survivors of abuse yeah. and most of those survivors are americans yeah. you know if i can assume yeah of course. well actually no we have a lot of immigrant survivors but Everyone's based here in America. I, I, I just, like, it makes me so mad how anti-immigrant we've become, our nation of immigrants. I think about that sometimes. I mean, I am very, very fortunate um, both to be married to a U.S. citizen 
and also to be from England. So I know that however much grief immigration gives me at the border, it's only going to be but so bad because I have a British passport. I mean, I can tell you from our work, so many of our clients are, are immigrant single mothers who work harder and smarter than anyone I know. And I have never met a lazy immigrant in my life. We also hold up uh, people with British accents mm -hmm. as being smarter. Which is why I'm upset that I've lost mine. Because when I first got here and I was in law school, all my friends were like, you could say anything and you would sound smart. You're also a person of color. Yes. Does your British accent like protect you from discrimination from that? Uh, that's interesting. I grew up in England, which is you know, the birthplace of colonization and white supremacy. Um, so I experienced it kind of all my life. And to be Indian in England is, I think, a lot like being Mexican in America. And I can't say that I know what it's like to be Mexican in America, except that it's this, what I sense is, it's this idea of go back to where you came from. Oh, really? Um, you know, Britain colonized uh, India. They killed 32 million Indians. They took all the wealth of that land. And that lineage is still existing, like those very, biases. Very so. I've never heard that. Very, wow. very much so. I remember, I mean, I, we had someone when I was a kid who came to like fit furniture at our house and realized that we were Indian and refused to do the job. Or I, you know, I was at a train station in Manchester once with an empty cup of Starbucks coffee and I asked if I could put it in a trash can in a like uh, store and the guy asked me if there was a bomb in the cup. That was very regular. Uh, I my racist <laughs> my racist uh, peers in at Cambridge called me. My nickname was Brownie, and that was just something that was like a joke. I say all that to say I had a very different experience coming here. There was this idea that I do have the privilege that. Uh, I'm seen as smart because I'm, I, ha I had an English accent and I was seen as smart because I was Indian. And Indians here are typically doctors and um, uh, accountants and software engineers. What I've experienced here that I never experienced in England is exotification. My culture is exotified. My skin color is exotified especially in LA. I mean, the yoga industrial complex in LA is like a whole new level of like, everyone is wearing an om around their neck or a Ganesh or everyone comes to my house wants to like touch my temple. That is a fascinating like off-brand racism it that is. we don't talk about. It is. Honestly, I'm thrilled to hear that we're not the, the only racist country on earth. <laughs> I mean, like every, the, the races here came from Europe. Right? Yeah, you've taught us everything. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, you have a legal background. Are there more legal protections in Britain for LGBTQ people? I mean, for as long as I can remember, we had the concept of domestic partnerships in England. Do I think that English people are any less homophobic? Absolutely not. In terms of legal things, like here are the majority states, you can be fired for being gay or yeah. being trans. Or do laws like that exist? Yeah. Not to my knowledge, although I will say that I don't keep up with English laws in the same way that I did. Um, it was only recently that they went from domestic partnerships to marriage. But it's just, it's a lot. I mean, if you think about how England, as self-important as they think they are, is tiny. It's like trying to regulate Pennsylvania, uh, it's a lot easier to do than 50 separate states. 
And so even their domestic violence laws, quite frankly, are more advanced because it's just easier to get stuff done. There's much less bureaucracy. And so it allows for a more efficient system of progress. Wow. Before we run out of time, you mentioned your wife, and that is Channing Nicholas, who is yes. one of the queer community's favorite astrologers. Yes, I've heard that. You've heard that. <laughs> Was astrology something that you were into before you met her? Well, I'm Indian, and that's important only because astrology is very important to Indians. So when I was born, uh, my parents had a birth chart made for me, which is like this 17-page handwritten document about what my life's going to be like. Um, and it was not uncommon for my mother to consult with an astrologer. Typically, before Indians get married, they pick a, they first of all check the they compare the birth charts of the two people that are going to get married. They pick a wedding date based on that. So it was kind of in my frame of reference. I'm an Aquarius sun. Um, that's as much as I knew about myself before I met Chani. And I remember like kind of like one of the early moments where I, where I fell in love with her. We'd been known each other for like four days, and I asked her what she was going to be doing that afternoon. And she said, I didn't even know she was an astrologer at this point. She said, well, I have a class with a master astrologer. And it was kind of like time stood still and there was fireworks. And I was like, whoa, she's so cool. And then like a week later, I discovered that actually I have a chart. Um, and I found out my birth time and I pulled up my chart. And just, I mean, I think that everyone has this experience when they see their chart for the first time, when they realize they're more than just a sun sign. It's the most validating like self-reflection there is, I think. And so I had a I had a interest in it. I knew nothing about it. And as soon as she gave me that knowledge, I was all about it. Um, and now, like, I'm not an astrologer, but I understand it through her and through being her editor and working on the business with her. Um, and so now we talk about everyone in terms of their chart. That's kind of like our secret code. It's like, well, you know, he's got a, you know, Virgo moon conjunct Pluto. And then she'll be like, oh, yeah. That's very funny. Yeah. How is having somebody like that to share a home with them, to share a bed with them? Uh, Shani's also does Reiki. Like she's very in tune yeah. with the natural world. How does uh, sharing a life like with someone like that affect you? Uh, it transformed my life. I am a very uh, heady person. I'm a very logic-oriented person. I'm not a feeling person, but like every other human being, I have so many feelings. And I cannot tell you how much I cried when I met Chani because she just is like, oh yeah, you think that everything only happens in your brain and you don't have a body below your neck? Let me let me show you where that body is. And so it was transformative. I went through an, a huge healing crisis. I um, really did the hard work of loving myself and uh, feeling all of the feelings that I have. And she integrated me in a way that I had never been before in my life. And that is her skill, her ability to make people feel all of their feelings and start to do their own healing work. And how is it to share a life with her? It's the most incredible thing in the world. When I interviewed her on this podcast about a year ago, mm -hmm. she said that her career took off when she fell yeah. in love, meaning with you. Yeah. Did you also experience that? What I experienced, what she experienced in her career, I experienced in my internal world. And that, you know, before we met, she had spent so much time working on her internal self, and I had spent so much time on my career and my external self. And so we kind of uh, had the reverse experience. You know, I had been doing domestic violence work since I was 16. What she helped me to realize was, 
if that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, that was okay. And if it wasn't, that was okay too. I remember going for an astrology reading with her teacher, her master astrologer teacher, who's an incredible uh, woman called Demetra George. It was the first astrology reading I'd ever had. And she looked at my chart. I was still in investment banking at this time. She looked at my chart and she goes, so I can see in your chart that you're really good with money and you're really good with numbers, but uh, you're meant to work with women who are oppressed, uh, particularly women who are oppressed in the home. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, I did that in law school. It's like, a, I'm, I'm sure that I'll raise a lot of money for domestic violence organizations in my life. And she was like, uh, no, like, that's cute, but this is what you're supposed to do with your life. And everything in your chart points to that. And this was not a fortune telling. This was somebody reading your reading chart, and, chart and seeing that. Yeah, I have a number of things in my chart that uh, point to that very distinctly. And interestingly, I've since read the charts of other people in the movement and seen a similar signature or signatures that kind of point to doing this work. And and that for me was so validating because I didn't know that it was okay to just want to do this work in my life. But seeing it in my chart was like, oh, well, you know, the chart says so. I was born to do this. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with it any longer. I love that. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for having of me. Of course. If people want to check out the tool we talked about or just the website, is the website the best place for that? Yeah, I think so. It's freefrom.org. And then from there, you can get to the tool. You can get to our online store where we sell products made by survivors. Fantastic. Thanks. Thank you so much. And that's our show. If you enjoyed the interview, please subscribe to the podcast and please tell your friends. When you spread the word about the podcast, it is one of the biggest ways to help our show grow. Thank you for that. And then don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at lgbtqpodcast.com. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of our new episodes, all of our live shows, like the Big Queer Podfest we just did. That's lgbtqpodcast.com. I want to say too that the midterms are coming up in just a few months, and as we know, it is incredibly important that we vote. That is why GLAAD is making it easier than ever to access the tools you need to speak out on the issues that matter. To learn more and make sure that your voice is heard this year, go to glad.org slash amp your voice. We are broadcasting from the Advocate Magazine studios in Los Angeles. The Advocate is the longest running LGBT news magazine in the country. They were founded in 1967. Special thank you to our other partners at Panoply, to our old home After Buzz TV, Jason McMurdy, and everyone for listening. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week.